all the files of the whole park. It tells her everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Double agents are a Cold War trope. An American spy has <gasps> secretly been working for the Russians the whole time. These days, you're more likely to run into a double agent in the world of corporate information technology. Sometimes, hackers are selling company secrets while helping the very corporations they exploit. Andrei Shumeko was one such double agent. The hacker cruised the digital hangouts of the people who bought and sold the secrets of Apple. Then, facing financial pressure and, to hear him tell it, a sense of guilt, he reached out to Apple. Things didn't go quite as Shumeko expected. This is the story of Apple's double agent, brought to you by Motherboard's Lorenzo Franceschi Bicarai. I'm Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. Lorenzo, thank you so much for coming onto the show again. Thanks. Thanks to you, Matt. Always happy to be here. All right. So this is a pretty wild story that I think says a lot about hacker culture and kind of the way they think. But let's get some basics out of the way, as we like to do. Who is Andrew Shumeko? So Shumeko is someone who is essentially someone who is obsessed with Apple and anything that has to do with Apple, especially anything that's supposed to be secret. So we're talking about applications that Apple employees use to communicate amongst themselves, um, systems that the company uses internally, any kind of data that points to new features in the, you know, in the upcoming iPhone or in the upcoming iOS uh, operating system. And so he is part of a community that calls themselves Apple internal. And by internal, they mean company internal stuff. But these people are not part of the company. They're just you know, sometimes there are hackers who like to, you know, develop jailbreaks for the iPhone. Sometimes there are people like Shumeko who just like are obsessed with Apple and get this data somehow. There are many ways they can get this data. And sometimes they trade it, meaning they sell it, uh, they exchange it among themselves, they publish it on Twitter, they discuss it on Discord. It's like a very strange community in many ways because they're just obsessed with Apple and there isn't really a logical reason for that. Yeah, you make them sound like they're Apple fans, but they're fans to such an extent that they have to like get into the hardware and start kind of getting into the secrets and the things that Apple doesn't want to talk about. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at them. And, you know, while they're fans, they're also like sometimes critical with the company. You know, sometimes they criticize it for being too secret. Sometimes they criticize it for having security vulnerabilities or bugs. Sometimes they report these bugs to the company and, you know, in hopes that Apple will fix them and maybe reward them with a bug bounty or something like that. So they have a very confrontational relationship with the company, but it seems like they can't escape loving the company as well, because all they want is just find out more stuff about the company. And so kind of on the other side of this is something called Apple's global security team. What is that exactly? Apple's global security is the team at Apple that takes care of all sorts of security threats to the company. And this can go from, you know, physical threats to employees, leaks. If an employee is uh, leaking something or if some feature from the upcoming iPhone ends up on 9to5Mac or Mac Rumors or one of these websites, this is the team at Apple that investigates how this leak happened. 
And they're pretty secretive. We really don't know too much about it. There was a story on the outline a few years ago. There was a very good deep dive into this division. Uh, it talked about the fact that a lot of the employees at, at Apple Global Security are former FBI agents, former CIA, former NSA. So it's like a very elite team of anti-leak investigators. So it's a private security force recruited that sometimes recruits out of America's intelligence community? Yeah, exactly. And sometimes, you know, I don't think it's all like former spooks, but it's also some people that worked in private security, uh, both like physical security and cybersecurity. So like cybersecurity companies, threat intel companies, stuff like that. All right. So, so why did Shumako reach out to them? Why make contact? What did he want? Uh, the story between Shumako and Global Security started in 2017 when Shumako claims he found uh, sort of like he found like a phishing campaign that was uh, happening against a bunch of uh, Apple employees. And so his, his intention back then was to help Apple protect their employees. Um, and then in 2020, after the upcoming version of iOS, which at the time was iOS 14, leaked online, he reached out to Global Security again saying, hey, I know how this happened. I know who is responsible for this leak. Let me help you. And what did he want? We have seen like a long transcript of his interactions with Global Security. And all the time, he both wanted to help. So he seemed like, you know, he had this generous side of him. You know, he wanted to help Apple fix these issues and find out who, who leaked iOS 14. But at the same time, he was also hoping for a reward. So in many instances over the months, and he spoke to Global Security for like around a year, he was asking, hey, you know, can I have a reward? Is there any like some sort of, you know, bounty that you can give me? Any kind of like compensation for my information? And his handler, for lack of a better word, was always non-committal. They were always saying, well, let me look into it. You know, it's above my pay grade. I can do a meeting with my superiors and l let you know. But Apple never promised him a reward. Well, he also, I thought this was interesting. This is in the story. He also wanted approval. Right. He wanted to know that he had helped. Yeah. One of the reasons why he was angry at Apple and, you know, ultimately decided to come out and talk to us was that he felt like Apple used him, that Apple was just milking him for information, essentially. And and you can see that in the in the conversation. You know, there are moments in which Shumako tells information to this handler, but there are also moments in which the Apple employee is like, hey, do you know anything about this? Or hey, can you tell us more about this? Please let us know. If you come across any information, you know, give it to us. Uh, sometimes they also encouraged him. You know, they were like, you're doing the right thing. Keep doing the right thing. And, you know, you'll be proud of yourself. Like looking at this conversation was very strange. It was a uh, very one-sided, but at the same time, the Apple employee was trying to, you know, keep it going, even though clearly they didn't want to pay Shoemaker. They didn't want to give him any compensation. And there were moments in which Shoemaker was like frustrated. He was saying stuff like, hey, you know, I feel like I've helped a lot, but you're not even telling me how my information is helping you. You're not even telling me if you're doing anything with my information. Can you tell me how your investigation is going? And every time he would like face either silence or, yeah, we'll let you know. We're looking into it. So it, it was a very interesting conversation to see. And you can see why Shoemaker was frustrated. 
Yeah, it was really interesting to read because you're you're kind of getting this transcript of this person who develops this weird parasocial relationship with a tech company that they love, they obviously love, but are also angry at. And they've got this interaction with an agent of that tech company that it felt like reading the transcripts of of like an abusive relationship in a way is very strange. Like we saw the whole conversation starting from in May 2020 till I think June 2021. And yeah, it was just bizarre. Like sometimes I was just, I mean, one of the big questions that I, you know, I had to ask myself and we discussed it with the editors was like, why is Shoemaker doing this? You know, are they playing us too? Is there something we're missing here? Because yeah, I just don't know what he was hoping to get by by talking about this publicly. And, you know, ultimately, we don't know what Apple got out of this whole thing. You know, given that Apple didn't tell him anything about what his information uh, was useful for, we don't know that either. Apple didn't want to comment. Uh, you know, they gave us the classic Apple no comment response. The big question here that I wish we could answer is, did Shumeko actually knew who leaked iOS 14? Did he actually know who the these Chinese resellers who trade in stolen prototypes are. We just don't know, unfortunately. Yeah, another thing that struck me, that's a quote from him in this story um, that I believe is from the transcripts. Uh, People trust me and find me pretty likable, and so I'm capable of using that to my advantage. Um, Which I think was just pretty wild because it also speaks to how much of hacking is just talking to people, whether that's online or on the phone. Um, it is not so much ones and zeros knowledge. Can you kind of explain like why social engineering is such a big deal here? Yeah, I think social engineering is the perfect way to describe this. Uh, you know, on one hand, Shumeko was part of this sprawling community, talking to people that maybe steal Apple devices from Shenzhen or, you know, get them out of the factory somehow. Uh, he was trying to sort of you know, appease them with whatever promises. And then on the other side, he was also talking to Apple, sort of ratting out or snitching on them, for lack of a better word. And yeah, I mean, this is sort of like, he was doing social engineering on both, you know, his friends or colleagues or, you know, people in his, in his, his own community. And maybe also on Apple, right? He was talking to Apple, he was hoping for a reward. So it seemed like it was maybe socially engineering Apple as well. And so... After he's kind of upset with how things are going with Apple, he leaks himself, right? He leaks something to 9to5Mac. Yeah, this happened while he was talking to to the Apple employee. At some point, Shumeko got in touch with another Apple employee, someone who worked in Germany on the Apple Maps product. And this person leaked him some, you know, some details of how the Apple Maps uh, program was, was doing in Germany. And Shumeko decided to leak this to 9to5Mac. And Shumeko says that his leak, you know, this this data that he passed to 9to5Mac, which resulted in a blog post, got his, uh, you know, his contact at Apple Maps fired. And in the transcript, you can see, you know, you can see this happening behind the scenes. The Apple employee at Global Security tells him, hey, we, we saw the article. Shumeko immediately apologizes, says, yeah, I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't have done that. I promise I will not do it again. The Apple Global Security employee says, yeah, please let us know if you want to publish anything. So they tell Shumeko something like, you know, please keep keep doing the right thing. 
Apple employee says, you know, all we care about is protecting Apple. We hope that you you do as well. Yeah, I thought that was so strange that the the Apple, the global security contact was like, hey, just let us know next time <laughs> before you do <laughs> yeah. something like this. Do you have any sense of why he talked to you? What Shumeka says is that he just got fed up. You know, he had talked to Apple for more than a year. You know, he helped them in 2017. And, you know, they never gave him anything back. They never gave him any love, for lack of a better expression. And so initially, he actually tweeted uh, part of this story uh, on his own Twitter account. I think this was in late May or June of this year. And you could tell, like, I remember seeing that thread and, you know, he was frustrated. He was talking about how Apple deceived him and used him. That thread was taken down. Actually, his whole account was taken down. Shumeko says that Apple pulled it using a DMCA. It's unclear. You know, in that thread, he did publish like screenshots uh, from stuff that is, you know, Apple copyright. So that's possible. But yeah, after that thread, we reached out. I reached out and Shumeko was like, yeah, you know, I'll tell you my, this whole story. I think it was cathartic for him. He's like, I just want to get this out. You know, I want to talk about it and, and move on. You know, it's also interesting, there is this long tradition in the hackerspace of people like Shumeko uh, doing these kind of leaks and getting this kind of information and then being kind of brought into the security team or like going to jail or paying a fine and then getting hired by the company that they had hacked, um, which we'll be talking about in just a minute on the other side of this ad break uh, when we go into Cypher. Uh, Lorenzo, would you like to join me over there? Yeah, why not? Let's do it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello, everyone. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cypher. It's that part of Cyber where we decipher the week's biggest tech stories. With me, as almost always, is motherboard staff writer Lorenzo Franceschi Bicarai. Uh, Lorenzo, thank you for sticking around. Of course. All right, so this this episode of Cyber is just a, a Lorenzo extravaganza. Uh, you know, we just talked about um, this really bizarre case with Apple, and now we're going to go into another bizarre case, the $600 million crypto heist is the most bizarre hack in recent memory. 
Um, you actually just filed another story about this as as we're sitting down to record. What is going on here? What happened? So this is really like we use bizarre in the headline. And I think that's the best word to describe this. It's one of the strangest hacks I can remember. And it's also it could have been one of the biggest cryptocurrency highs ever. So what happened here is that on August 10, the Poly Network, which is a cross-platform cryptocurrency company that essentially offers customers uh, the ability to buy and trade a cryptocurrency uh, various cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, and others announced that it had been hacked. The company like tweeted that there was like an incident ongoing and someone was transferring millions of dollars in cryptocurrencies. And you know this alone is not a huge story in the sense that this has happened many times. You know it seems like there's so many cryptocurrency companies these days that get hacked. You know almost every week. But in this case, what was notable at the time when the hack was announced was that it was a lot of money. We're talking about around $600 million, which would make it one of the biggest cryptocurrency heists ever. And then the story got weird. The company published an open letter on Twitter. The letter started with Dear Hacker, which is already kind of funny. And the company just told the hacker, hey, you know, please return the funds. Law enforcement may be very interested in this uh, thing you just did. So maybe, you know, maybe think again. And strangely, that actually worked. The hacker started returning the funds and exchanging messages with the company on the blockchain. So they would publish messages along with the funds uh, being transferred. And the hacker claimed that they had just, you know, they found a vulnerability and they just wanted to see if it worked and they never really intended to commit a crime. So they were very happy to return the funds. And this started like a back and forth over a couple of weeks or 10 days in which, you know, the Poly Network kept updating customers saying, hey, we're receiving the funds back. It seems like everything is going well. At the same time, they're also publicly talking to the hacker saying, you know, thank you so much. Uh, we we are willing to give you $500,000 as a bug bounty, which is a very strange definition of a bug bounty here. You know, normally bug bounties are paid as part of a formal program where companies advertise that they're looking for uh, vulnerability reports. Uh, there's a public list, you know, that the company wants uh, white hat hackers to look into. You know, in this case, there was nothing like that. You know, this guy stole money and then the company said, hey, we can give you a bug bounty. You know, they gave the hacker $500,000 that happened last week. And today the story seems to have come to an end with the last transfer of the stolen cryptocurrency. So as of today, the Poly Network has recovered uh, pretty much all the funds. The only funds they haven't recovered is, uh, I think, around uh, 30 million, which are frozen by the company that owns them. So ultimately, I think these will be returned as well. But, you know, the big question here now is what happens to the hacker? Uh, they have gotten the $500,000. You know, presumably law enforcement has been... Uh, you know, working on this case, I would imagine that the Poly Network, you know, shared this incident with the feds. And, you know, we'll see if they if they think that this is okay, if, you know, if they think that the, the hacker can go scots-free. But my feeling is that this is not the end. For, forgive my ignorance here, but isn't one of the whole points of cryptocurrency that it's secure and this kind of thing can't happen? Yeah, you would think that, uh, especially you know, reading marketing material from these companies, I think the promise of 
Bitcoin initially and all the cryptocurrencies that it has spawned was always security, it was always anonymity. You know, the idea was that this was a new kind of currency that did not have the same pitfalls that the you know the regular currencies we all use have but over the years there's been so many of these heists like i can't even remember you know all of them like no one can there's the famous mount gox hack of a few years ago uh, there's been this one i remember a couple of years ago there was like a 200 million dollar heist you know it happens all the time because a lot of these companies see this market as a sort of a gold rush you know uh, you have all these investors, all these startup guys that launch companies. They don't really know anything about cybersecurity. And they end up making mistakes like the Poly Network. You know, there are vulnerabilities and hackers are obviously very interested in exploiting them because if you can find a bug like this, you can just transfer the money. And sometimes there's no way to get it back. You know, part of the appeal of, of cryptocurrencies is that Everything is public, but at the same time, all the transactions cannot be reverted. So if you get the money, then you can keep it. It's also fascinating to me that they gave the money back. If I had gotten away with $600 million and someone was offering me, send me a please note with, you know, and we'll send you 500000 in return, I just, I don't know. But I mean, again, that speaks to the hacker ethos, right? You know, no one has talked to the hacker other than Poly Network, and it does seem like this person just had a, you know, ethical uh, white hat goal. But, you know, if we believe that they were actually good guys and they just wanted to, you know, tell Poly Network that there was a problem in their platform, they could have just told them, right? They didn't need to steal $600 million. So it's unclear if the these hackers or this hacker change their mind once they, you know, they realized that this was a huge deal or, you know, they were just sort of arrogant and thought that the best way to report a bug was to steal a lot of money. Well, and to be fair, and this is something we kind of teased in the previous segment, there is this storied tradition in, you know, the hacker space of people doing this kind of thing, serving their time, paying their fine, and then getting a job afterwards can you can you tell some of those stories yeah this is like a classic hacker story especially back in the 90s and early 2000s when cybersecurity was still a rising industry and there were not a lot of written rules you know a lot of hacking is just trying things out you know trying to break into systems and if you can prove that you're good at it no matter how you do it you know sometimes you may commit a crime that is seen as you know, as a show of, of skills. And, you know, there are many, many examples. One of the most uh, well-known ones is the the case of Kevin Mitnick, who is, you know, basically a celebrity at this point in cybersecurity. You know, he has written books, he, he appears on uh, conferences, and he served a few years in jail after a series of data breaches and hacks in the 90s. He actually was a fugitive for a while. The FBI was on his tail. Then, Another cybersecurity guy started tracking him and then helped the FBI. This person also wrote a book out of all this. And yeah, you know, years later, Kevin Mitnick was working for cybersecurity companies. Yet at some point, he had his own startup. So this has happened a lot. I think it's uh, not as common anymore because some companies are a little worried about hiring former convicts. But it's still, you know, it still happens every day. All right, one more story to kind of see us out that's a little bit lighter, also dealing with hackers, and Call of Duty Warzone, which is something that you've been writing about quite a bit. 
uh, and the motherboard team, I almost consider it, it's like their golf. We like to go out and get dubs in the Warzone. Hacked Warzone account sellers are running out of stock. How is that possible, Lorenzo? So what's happening here is that there is a very flourishing underground market of hacked accounts. And the reason that people want to buy hacked Warzone accounts is that they, you know, these accounts have like better kill-death ratios, you know, KD ratios. They have like unlocked skins that are really hard to get or unlocked weapons that are also very hard to get. And so hackers steal them and then resell them because these accounts are valuable. You know, you can play with like cool looking weapons or you can use them to cheat. So you don't, you know, you don't get your main account banned for using cheats. And what's happening is that Activision does not like this and does not want this to happen. And they've been slowly clamping down on this market. And recently they added like a CAPTCHA when you log in that essentially stops hackers from using brute force on uh, on a bunch of accounts and some other security measures that, you know, they're targeting these, these hackers who sometimes have bots or like farms and they just ban them all. You know, once they identify all these accounts that are linked to somebody, to one person or one group, they ban them all. And uh, it seems like they're being more efficient at this. And we have seen uh, some of these hackers and some of these people that sell these accounts complain that the stock is just drying up. So on one hand, they're complaining that there aren't that many accounts, but on the other hand, the price of the accounts is going up because they're now harder to get. If I want to get a hacked Warzone account because I want some of these great skins, I want to lie about what my KD ratio is, what's that going to run me? It depends. It, we're talking about like it could be $50, but it could also be hundreds of dollars. Like if you are looking for, you know, the hardest skin to unlock, I think it's called the Damascus, it could be $800. Like we're talking about serious money here. As a casual gamer at Warzone, I don't really understand this. Um, you know, the game is free to play. You can have fun with your friends just by downloading it on your computer or your, or your PlayStation. So, yeah, I don't see the need to have that kind of thing. But, you know, if you are interested in that, there's Discord channels and it's, you know, they're not that hard to find. I think the the underlying reasons why uh, people feel the need to identify with their Call of Duty account um, and spend that kind of money on it are beyond the remit of this particular <laughs> no. episode of Cyber. Uh, but I do think that it's something important that people keep in mind as we go forward into this brave, new, and terrible future that we have built for ourselves. Lorenzo, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and Cypher to walk us through these stories today. They are Apple's double agent. Uh, the $600 million crypto heist is the most bizarre hack in recent memory, and hacked Warzone account sellers are running out of stock, and they are all on Motherboard. See you on the internet. Bye-bye. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.